All right. Welcome to Theological Equipping 2019. Uh, if you didn't get a, a handout, there is one on that table in the back. Uh, I think we also have some extra syllabi. If you're wanting to know uh, what we're going to be talking about this semester, you can also grab, uh, grab one of those. Good to see you all. Thanks for getting up extra early to get here at the crack of dawn at 9 a.m., I uh, hope that wasn't too tough after the, uh, the holidays. It gets easier. As the sun starts coming up earlier, uh, that will become easier. But uh, let me tell you what we're going to be going over uh, this semester and then what we're going to be going over today. So, if you think back to two semesters ago, whew, I mean, that's like an eternity ago. What did we talk about? Who remembers? Ah, why are we even doing this class? Uh, everything we give you here, we want you to retain for six months and then forget it. Uh, we talked about Christ and how He purchased our salvation. We started talking about soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, and specifically we talked about how Christ purchased our salvation, how He did the stuff that we might be saved, okay? Last semester, we talked about what's called the application of redemption. We talked about how we get that. So Christ earned it. Christ purchased it. Christ died on a cross for us. Christ was resurrected. Christ lived perfectly on our behalf. And then last semester, we talked about how that good stuff gets applied to us. We talked about things like election and regeneration and justification and those kind of things. Let me tell you what we're going to be talking about this semester, okay? This semester, we're going to finish talking about the doctrine of salvation. And specifically, we're going to be talking about what we are calling the Christian life. What does it look like? Now that you're saved, now that you're in relationship with God, now that you've been adopted, now that you've been regenerated, now that you're already a Christian, what does life look like Thenceforth, there's a reason why when we baptize people, we don't just hold them under the water and send them to glory, okay? There is a whole life left to live uh, post-conversion, and so what we're going to be talking about uh, this semester is the Christian life. We're going to be talking about sanctification, how to grow in holiness. We're going to be talking about Christian ethics. We're going to be talking about those kind of things, and then midway through the semester, we're going to be completely switching gears and getting into what is called ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. What is the church? What is the purpose of the church? What should we think about church membership and church discipline and baptism and communion? Uh, how should the church relate to politics? Ooh, that one will be super spicy. So anyway, these things are coming. Uh, again, if you want to know what we're going to be talking about, we've put those extra uh, used syllabi. If you're wondering why they're all wrinkled on that uh, back table for you, if you want to grab one, if you didn't get one last week uh, when, we, uh, when we pass them out. Uh, but that's what we're going to be talking about. So this morning, we're going to start talking about sanctification, okay, which is just this really fancy word that means growing in holiness. Sanctus is holy in uh, Latin, and so that's where you get the word sanctification, and we're going to be talking about it in two parts. Today, we're going to be talking about what's called mortification. That sounds, uh, that sounds a little bit depressing, and then next week, we're going to be talking about what's called vivification. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we talked about conversion, so we had a lesson on conversion, okay? We said that there are two sides to the same coin when it comes to conversion. Anybody remember what those were? I heard it. Somebody said it. Heads and tails are two sides of the... Unless, unless I'm betting you, then I've got a double-sided coin. Yeah. Does anybody remember what he said for conversion, that there is one turn away from something and a turn to something? Repentance and faith, exactly right. The repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't repent from your sin and not turn to Christ and be saved, nor can you turn to Christ and not forsake your sin and be saved, that as you're turning to Christ, you're turning away from sin and to Christ. It's only one turn, 
but it involves a turning away from what's bad and a turning to what's good. Well, as we're talking about sanctification today, there are really two parts of it. They don't happen separately. We're just teaching on them separately, so it's easier to uh, retain the information. But there's really two sides of the same coin in sanctification. One is called mortification, which is where you put sin to death. The other is called vivification, where you learn to grow in your love for God, okay? So with that in mind, let's read this definition. And by let's, I mean you guys just listen. Please don't try to read it with me at the same time. Here we go. Sanctification is a process whereby the Spirit, notice it's a process, notice it's the Spirit who sanctifies us, causes us to grow in holiness and freedom from sin. In justification, we are credited as being righteous. In sanctification, we practically become what we have already been declared to be. Sanctification includes both growing in holiness slash spiritual life, what's called vivification, Jeff will talk about that next week, and in putting sin to death, what's called mortification. That's what we will talk about today. So before we talk about sanctification, just a, a quick overview of the difference between that and justification. It is essential for your Christian life that you keep these two concepts separate, okay? When you end up confusing these two concepts of justification, God declaring you to be perfect in His sight, versus sanctification, you practically growing in holiness. When you confuse those, that is like the root of all bad things in the Christian life. That's where you start trying to earn God's favor. That's when you start thinking that maybe you're not actually holy and perfect and loved by God because you still have sins and struggles in your life and these kind of things. So let me just briefly outline the difference between these things. Let me clarify what they are, and then we'll go through some of the differences. Justification is your initial salvation. It is where, based on repentance and faith alone, God credits you as being perfect, as being righteous in Christ. Christ is actually perfect. He is actually holy. He has kept all the rules. And when you repent and you trust in Christ, God sees you as dying and you are just in Christ. There is no more you. You have died. There is only you in Christ. So when the Father sees you, He sees you as 100% perfect because Christ is perfect. He sees you as 100% righteous because Christ is righteous. He sees you as absolutely sinless because Christ is absolutely sinless. At the moment of repentance and faith, God slams down the gavel and declares you to be everything that Christ is, loved, perfect, accepted, holy, all these kind of things, okay? Sanctification is where we learn to practically become down here on earth what we've already been declared to be. So the example that we've given is this. It's not that I go to class and I go to class and I go to class and I earn credits and I earn credits and then I finally get my degree. That's Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism blends justification and sanctification. In Protestantism, it's this, that on day one, God declares you to be, have your degree. He declares you to be doctor. Welcome, Dr. Ashley or Dr. Williams. Well, that, you're already a doctor anyway, but you get the point, okay? Whoever, okay? And then classes start the very next day, and they continue for the rest of your life. You already have the title. You already have the status. You can already teach classes. But for the rest of your life, you now practically become, you learn more and more what you've already been granted, what you've already been declared to be. So here's some differences between justification and sanctification before we just talk about sanctification today. First of all, justification, that is legal standing. God is not looking at you and saying, if he just looks at you in your own life, which is full of sin, that you're actually perfect. He's saying, you're perfect, and he gives you the status of being perfect because you're seen as being in Christ. In and of ourselves, we're not righteous. In and of ourselves, we're not perfect. We're only perfect as God grants us that status because of Christ, okay? So it's talking about legal standing. As Paul would say in Romans 4, that God credits the ungodly as being righteous by faith, okay? In sanctification, that talks about an internal condition, so you see the difference here. Justification, when God saves you, this is a thing He declares about you. It's a status. It's your legal standing. 
whereas sanctification is an internal condition. Justification, it's once for all time, okay? There is one moment where you go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God, and that is the moment of justification. Whereas in sanctification, growing in that holiness, that is continuous throughout life, okay? And justification, that's perfect in this life, and sanctification, it's not perfect in this life. You will never be fully sanctified until you die. Justification is the same in all Christians. Who is more justified, me or Tim Hollis? We're equally justified, okay? All Christians are equally justified. We're all equally in Christ. We're all equally perfect in our legal standing. But when it comes to sanctification, that can be greater in some than in others. Now, who's more sanctified, me or Tim Hollis? That's a joke. The answer is probably Tim, but there you go, okay? In justification, it's instantaneous. You go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God on the, on the moment of repentance and faith. It happens just like that, okay? God offers you a full pardon. You are forgiven. You are righteous. But in sanctification, that's the growing in that practical holiness. That's something you become slowly over time. You become more and more what you've already been declared to be, okay? So it's just important that you keep in mind justification, what makes you go from an enemy of God to a friend of God. What we talk about when we talk about someone getting saved is just based upon repentance and faith where God grants to you the righteousness of Christ. And in that moment on, you're God's child. You're forgiven. You're loved. You will never lose it. You're accepted. Everything is going to be okay. The rest of the Christian life is learning to be what you've already been declared to be. It's practicing the way God already thinks of you, okay? That's the rest of the Christian life. That's why the Apostle Paul so often in the Bible will give you a bunch of theology first and then give you a command to walk in righteousness. It can't go the other way. It's because you're righteous in Christ. It's because God's done all these things for you. Therefore, now you can walk in righteousness, not the other way around. When you switch those, that's when you get a cult. When you switch those and you start to think, I will actually be righteous when I finally work up my own righteousness, that is Pelagian. That is not Christian. Okay? So we're going to be just talking about sanctification. If you want to know more about justification, we've got a few lessons uh, about that on our uh, website. We're just going to be talking about sanctification. Let's talk about these two different parts of sanctification. Vivification, what Jeff is going to talk about next week, has to do with bringing to life what is good in you, whereas mortification has to do with putting to death what is bad in you. Okay? So in vivification, you're fanning the flames of holiness, loving Christ, etc. In mortification, you're denying self, resisting sin, etc. Now, those terms seem really fancy and Latin-y, but let me just break them down so you can remember it. What is vive? What does that mean? What does it mean to live in la vida loca? Anybody? Any, any Ricky Martin fans? Don't acknowledge that if you are. But what does that phrase mean? Living the crazy life, right? Vide or vida is what it would come over into Spanish. Those, that's the word for life. So the idea is that you bring to life what's good in you. What is a uh, mortuary? Or what if something is mortifying? Or what does that mort root mean? Death. It means putting something to death, putting to death what is bad in you. So those seem like fancy terms, but really it just means this. Here's how you grow in holiness. Bring up the good stuff and stomp down the bad stuff, okay? So let's talk about uh, mortification. Before we do, I want to mention one uh, figure to you that is uh, very important in this discussion. It's a Puritan thinker, uh, and his name is John Owen, okay? John Owen. Uh, we brought up John Owen in another lecture when we talked about limited atonement. He has an excellent treatise uh, on limited atonement, but he's also famous for writing about the concept of mortifying sin, of killing sin, okay? Uh, he's one of the most influential authors regarding this idea. He wrote on the mortification of sin in believers, of temptation, and the nature, power, deceit, and presence of indwelling sin. So he wrote a lot on what it looks like to put sin to death. By the way, he would know he had 11 children, 10 of whom died in infancy. 
Okay? So if you want to talk about a guy that has had to go through hard times and has had to put sin to death and has had to say that God is better than any of God's gifts, it's the Puritan thinker John Owen. Here's what he says about mortification. To mortify is a metaphorical expression taken from the putting, uh, uh, putting of any living thing to death. Indwelling sin is compared to a person, a living person called the, quote, old man with his faculties and properties, his wisdom, craft, subtlety, strength. This must be killed, put to death, mortified. That is, have its power, life, vigor, and strength to produce its effects taken away by the Spirit, utterly mortified and slain by the cross of Christ. Okay? That's what we're going to be talking about. So let's look at some biblical passages that talk about killing sin. Before I get into this, here's going to be the pattern you're going to see over and over in these passages. God has already done this for you. You're already free from sin. You're already alive in Christ. You already are righteous. Therefore, put to death what is wicked. Put to death what is evil. Not put these things to death so God loves you, but rather God loves you, so therefore put these things to death. But let's read some of these passages. Romans 6.11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Why? Because you are. Theology produces practice. You are dead to sin in God's eyes, so therefore live like it, is what he's saying. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 2-4. By no means. How can we who died to sin, notice that phrase again, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him in baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see both mortification and vivification actually in that passage, okay? But the idea here is that when you are, when you, at your conversion, when you turned and you trusted Christ, which is what baptism symbolizes, that there is not just an awakening and a new life in Christ, but you're dying to your old self. You're dying to your sin. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but our baptistry looks like a coffin, and that's intentional. We're not just morbid people. We weren't just designing the church around Halloween time or something like that. That's intentional. You die to the sin. You die to your old self. You die to your preferences and your raise in Christ. Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, meaning the Mosaic law, having died to that which held us captive, okay? So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice it's by the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body. Not by trying harder, not by trying to be a good moral person. It's by the Spirit. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, if you're thinking, wait a second, does that mean God hates uh, things on the earth? Does he hate mountains? Does he hate my body? Does he hate that I'm a physical being? No, it goes on to clarify. What does it mean that's earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death what's sinful in you, is what he's saying by earthly there. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice that this is talked about like it's already happened. When we talk about the kingdom of God, the end times, what we say is that it's already and not yet. The kingdom has already come in Christ, but we're also waiting for the fullness of the kingdom. We don't quite see the enemy fully stamped out yet, okay, so that it's already and not yet. Salvation is the same way. You're already saved and that God's already justified you, but you're also being saved. The same is true with putting sin to death. Sin has already been put to death in you officially, legally, and you're also putting it to death. That both and, that already not yet, is here in this idea of mortification as well. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, okay? 
You don't see the word death there, but the idea is the same. Any defilement, let's get rid of those things. Let's stomp out what's evil in you of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, okay? So the rest of this, I want to just talk about some tips and clarifications about mortification. So here's what we understand. When you repent and trust in Christ, you're forgiven. At that point after, if you die, you will be with Christ forever, okay? What then does it look like to grow in holiness? That's sanctification. That's what we're talking about. Sanctification has two parts, growing in love for God and good things and holiness, vivification, live in la vida loca, and then there is the mortification, putting sin to death. So let's talk about, I've got about 15 tips here about putting sin to death practically. So if you guys really like practical stuff, this is a very practical lesson, okay? Uh, What we've been doing in Romans so far has been very heady and theological. This will be very practical. So I want to go through these different points about how to put sin to death. Number one, you are not called to merely manage your sin but to put it to death. Most of us, when we see sin in our lives, we recognize that it's bad and it's there, but we just kind of manage it, okay? It's like this monster in the closet, and instead of slaying it, instead of killing it, we just kind of throw it crumbs and throw it food every now and again, so it kind of stays in the closet, but we don't really deal with it. Biblically, you're not called to manage your sin. You are called to put it to death. You are called to do whatever you have to do to kill that sin. If that means you gouge out your eye, if that means you cut off your hand, if that means you don't have internet in your house, if that means you get a different job, if that means you move to a different city, whatever you have to do, by all means necessary, do whatever you need to do to kill sin. Do not manage sin. Do not feed it. It is not a pet. It is a snake that will grow up like an anaconda, and when you are sleeping, will strangle you, okay? We are not called to manage our sin. We are called to fight it with every fiber of our being and to put it to death. I think you'll find if there's any habitual sin. So if, if I were to say to you, what sin just is always popping up? What sin is just that thing that's kind of recurring in your life? It's probably something that you're not fighting with everything. It's probably something you're managing. It's that monster in the closet that comes out when you don't want it to sometimes, but you just stuff it in there and close the door. That thing has to be murdered. That thing has to be slain. That thing has to, uh, uh, has to be killed. Number two, you grow in fighting sin by remembering that it has already been conquered. You have the ability as a Christian, when any individual sin pops its head up in the middle of the week and says, you must commit me, you have the ability as a Christian to say no to that because it's already been defeated. If you feel like sin has enslaved you, if you feel like I must commit this sin, I know that I'm free, but I really still feel enslaved, that is just a feeling and your feelings are liars because biblically, you are always fighting a conquered enemy when we talk about sin. You're fighting an enemy that's already been conquered. You don't have to be like, man, I wonder if I'm going to conquer this. It's a conquered enemy. You'll find that for most of us, we are carrying around broken chains, asking God to break our chains. The chains have already been broken. You've been set free. If you are continually doing these things, it's because there's a part of you that wants to. Sin is far more voluntary post-conversion than we like to talk about. Number three, You grow in fighting sin by remembering that your status before God is already sinless and perfect. It's already sinless and perfect. There is always a tendency for us to think, if I would just conquer this sin, then I would be more holy. If I would just conquer this sin, then God would love me more. If I would just conquer this sin, then everything would be okay. You have to think about that in reverse. I'm already perfect and holy, therefore I can conquer this sin. Even if I don't conquer this sin, God's love for me doesn't change at all. He sees me as perfect, spotless, righteous, loved, whether I conquer it or not. That God's righteousness and God's holiness and his acceptance of you precedes any of your doing. 
there's always a tendency for us to do the opposite. So let's say you commit some horrible sin. There's a tendency for you to go home and think, God probably loves me a little bit less. He's probably a little bit frustrated with me, and so I'm just going to try to do better tomorrow. That will end you in a cycle of legalism and depression constantly because you are not meant to be holy in and of yourself. You are only meant to be holy in Christ, okay? So when you commit some sort of sin, instead of wallowing in that sin and trying to commit self-atonement by showing God how sorry you feel, instead, you should repent, but then you should walk in freedom. You should walk in grace. God is not taking any more sacrifices from you when it comes to atonement. And so you need to realize that you fight sin by remembering that your status before God is already sinless and perfect. Whether I conquer this sin or not, I'm loved. Whether I fail a hundred times or I don't, I'm already loved. And you will find by focusing more on the fact that you're already loved, those sins start to lose a little bit of their power over your thinking. Number four, there is a difference, a huge difference between fighting sin and failing versus giving yourself over to sin, okay? That's really the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. Lost people give themselves over to their sin. They say, this is just who I am, and so I'm going to do it, okay? This is my temptation, and I want to follow it, so I'm just going to do it, and I'm not going to fight it. Christians still fall into sin. We still fall into sin all the time. The difference is that we are fighting it. We are saying, I don't want to be this. This is not who I am in Christ. This is not what my status is, and so we fight sin, okay? Let me give you an example. Uh, sometimes when people are joining their church, one of the questions they'll ask is this, Zach, would you allow uh, someone who uh, is homosexual to join Parkway or something like that? And it completely depends on what you mean. Do you mean this is a person who does love Christ, who is same-sex attracted but realizes that uh, that's only because we live in a broken world and he realizes that homosexuality is sinful? And so instead, he says, you know what, I'm not going to practice this. I am attracted to men, even though I'm a man, but I'm not going to practice this. I'm not going to pursue it. I'm not going to live in sexual morality. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm still tempted to this. We're all tempted towards things we shouldn't be tempted towards, but I'm not going to give into it. I'm going to love and follow Jesus. If you mean that, yes, welcome to the battle, brother. That's all of us. All of us are tempted towards something we shouldn't be, whether it's greed or lust or adultery or whatever. And we as Christians have to say, though I'm tempted towards this, Jesus is better than my temptation. My temptations don't get to to define who I am. Christ gets to define who I am. If you mean, though, the person says, I'm attracted to people of the same sex, and therefore it's okay, and I'm going to live in that lifestyle and practice acts of homosexuality, well, then no, but not because you're gay. It's because you don't love Jesus. You don't have a changed heart. Jesus is very clear that if you love him, you keep his commands. He has to be the thing you love the most. So can you be someone who fights sin, even falls into sin from time to time, and still love Jesus? Yes. Can you be somebody, though, who just gives yourself over to sin and doesn't even fight it, just lets that sin own them? No, that's called slavery. The thing that's supposed to own you is Christ. So there's a big difference between fighting sin and giving yourself over to sin, okay? So if there's some habitual sin in your life, some sort of sin that you see recurring, are you fighting that? Or have you just consigned yourself to defeat? You just said it will always be this way. I will never be free. This is just who I am. Because that is a lie. That is a lie from the enemy. That's not who you are. You are free in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Number five, you are free from the power of sin, but not the presence of sin. You are free from the power of sin, not the presence of sin. We talked a lot about this uh, in our Roman series. This is the example that uh, a pastor I like down at Denton Bible, Tommy Nelson, says. He says, what happens is when you're lost, it's like a phone rings, a phone of temptation. The phone obviously is going to be red, right, because it's temptation. And so the phone rings, and when you're lost, it'll ring. You're like, oh, man, the phone's ringing. And it will ring. Some people pick it up right away. 
Other people pick it up after 10 rings. Other people pick it up after 100 rings, but eventually you pick it up, okay? When you're lost, you have the freedom to pick what sin enslaves you, but you don't have the freedom not to be enslaved to sin. When you become a Christian, hear me, this is important, the phone will still ring. The temptations don't go away just because you're a Christian. In fact, that phone even rings for Jesus because he's tempted always as we are yet without sin. The difference is now you have the ability not to pick up the phone. The phone rings once, you think, ah, I used to pick that up, but I'm not going to pick that up. There's nothing good on the other end of that line. Then the phone rings 10 times, ah, oh, I'm not going to pick it up. And then the phone rings 100 times, and guess what? You still don't have to pick it up. The phone is still going to ring. You're not free from the presence of sin, but you're free from its power. You don't have to commit that one individual sin when it just pops up in the middle of the week, whatever it might be, okay? And so what you need to realize is sin no longer owns you, but you will not fully conquer sin this side of eternity. Now, that shouldn't bother you because your status is as one who's conquered sin, because Christ has conquered sin. The way God sees you, which is the most real thing in the world, is that you are sinless, okay? But practically, we do not believe in Christian perfectionism. We don't believe that this side of eternity you will ever get to a place where you just never sin again. There's a great example of this. I can't say uh, the word the guy used because there are uh, young people among us. But uh, there was, uh, out of uh, the Methodist church, out of uh, uh, John and Charles Wesley, out of their movement, there was eventually a movement that came in church history called the Holiness Movement. Uh, and they believed that you would actually reach a state to where you never sinned again. And there's this famous uh, example of one of these uh, Wesleyan holiness preachers being in Chicago, and the wind blew off his hat, and he yelled a curse word. And you're like, see? And so uh, you never reach perfection uh, this, side, uh, this side of eternity. So what that means is that mortification and sanctification, these things, you're going to be doing the rest of your life until you die. You don't get to a place to where that just doesn't happen anymore. I don't care whether you're 10 or whether you're 99 years old. If I come to you and I say, what sins are you struggling with? You should be able to give me an answer. If you can't, it's not because you lack sin. It's because you lack self-awareness. Our sin is always there, okay? We grow in holiness, so I, I can't run infinity miles. I can't just continually run. But if I train every day, I can run a little bit further than the day before. And that's kind of what it's like growing in sanctification. And you're never going to get to the place where you don't sin in any way, but there are individual sins that you can conquer, and you can grow in general, general holiness throughout the process, okay? Now look at this next one, number six. You don't stay away from sin by staying away from sinners. You stay away from sin by staying close to Jesus. So let me talk about one of these ways you don't do mortification. You don't circle the wagons and become the fundamentalist movement in the United States and try to stay away from all lost people, okay? Y'all ever seen uh, the movie uh, The Village by M. Night Shyamalan? Everybody seen that? I think that's okay. If there's something bad in it, I don't remember, so I, I will neither recommend nor not recommend it as a pastor because I don't remember. But uh, the premise of the movie, spoiler alert, you're like 20 years late if you haven't seen it, but spoiler alert, the idea is that all these people get together and create this little commune to try to keep their kids away from the evil in the world. So they raise their kids apart from the rest of the world, and they tell their kids there's all these scary monsters in the woods, and you can't go out at night because that's where the scary monsters are, and they dress up in costumes and scare them, and they keep them in that little city, okay? Thinking that the bad stuff is out there in the world, and we'll just protect our kids from that. Well, it turns out that one of the people in the village commits a murder. Why? Because the problem was not out there. The problem is inside of us. The problem is within each of us, born in the likeness of Adam, okay? The problem is our sin. And so we don't stay away from sin by staying away from sinners. All that does is make you weird and not evangelistic. Instead, you stay away from sin by staying close to Jesus. Imagine for a second you have people that are sick with some type of disease, but you have the cure. You have the vaccine or whatever it is. 
but you're too afraid to bring those people the vaccine because you're afraid you're going to catch the sinnies. What happens is you now have the solution. You have Christ. You have the gospel, but you can't go to the people because you're afraid that you might catch their sin. Guess what keeps you safe from the sin? The vaccine, the medicine that you've already taken in knowing Christ. You don't stay away from sin by staying away from sinners. If you do that, that's why most churches in America are plateaued or dying. That's why Christianity becomes more and more and more irrelevant. You stay away from sin by staying close to Jesus, okay? Now, you do have to be wise in who you minister to. If you're, an al- if you're tempted towards alcoholism, you probably are not called to minister in a bar, okay? I met a guy one time who said that he, uh, as a guy, would go to strip clubs and try to minister and share the gospel with the guys there. And we're like, mm, they're probably distracted. They're probably not listening, and you probably should not be there, right? And so you do have to be wise in who you minister to and the places that you put yourself, depending upon your weaknesses. But it's not by being around lost people that you, that sin just infects you, okay? Rather, you be around the lost people so that they might meet Jesus. That's what Jesus does. What is the thing that Jesus is most often critiqued for in the Gospels? That he eats with tax collectors and sinners. But Zach, won't that hurt your witness? Yes, it hurt Jesus' witness. Don't actually do it, but who cares what people think about that if you're walking in righteousness and trying to share the Gospel with people? Number seven. I like this next one. You don't mortify sin by staying away from non-sinful pleasures or by refusing to partake in good gifts God has given you, okay? So this is something that the reformers push really strongly because the Apostle Paul pushes this. The way you fight sin is not through asceticism, okay? Asceticism is where you deny yourself non-sinful pleasures. You don't have a comfortable bed, and you never drink wine, and you try not to laugh, and you do these kind of things. You wear these uncomfortable hair cloth clothes, and you sleep on the floor, kind of like monastic monasticism, kind of like monks in the Middle Ages that think that by walking in all these ascetic practices, whipping themselves when they sin and these kind of things, that it will keep them from sin. What the Apostle Paul is going to say is that those things have no effect on controlling the urges of the body. So you don't mortify sin by being an ascetic, by becoming a monk, by not partaking in non-sinful pleasures that God has given. Let me read you a passage and then a little quote from one of our blogs here at Parkway. Colossians 2, 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, again, notice uh, another phrase, uh, another mortification idea, you've died to the demons that had power over you when you were under the Mosaic law. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay? The way you're going to stay away from sin is by loving Christ, by enjoying the good things that He's given you that are not sinful. When you start walking in asceticism, what you start doing is you start separating God, the kind giver, from his gifts. You start seeing God as the enemy of all these good things he's given you. Instead, you have to realize it's God who's given you a spouse. It's God who's given you kids. It's God who's given you a good job. It's God who's given you money. It's God who's given you health. It's God who's given you any good thing you have. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. All those good things are meant to make you love God. Okay? It's, I don't give my son a birthday present and then take it away and say, you better love me without this present. I give him the present so that he will see that I love him. And God does the same thing. Okay? God does the same thing. Let me read you this quote from a little blog that we have on our website. It says this. 1 Timothy 6.17 says that it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Did you know that was in the Bible? 
That God actually wants you to enjoy life? That God has given you things to enjoy? Non-sinful pleasures? If anyone's like, yes, we should partake in the pleasures of God like adultery. Nope, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about non-sinful pleasures, okay? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In Acts 14, 17, it is God who, quote, did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And I could mention many other passages. He made alcohol to give us glad hearts, Psalm 104, 15. He gives us a spouse to delight in sexually, Proverbs 5, 19. He gives us children as a reward, Psalm 127, 3. In fact, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, James 1.17. Contrary to our assumptions, one of the marks of false teachers is not that they allow you to enjoy good things, but that they forbid them, Colossians 2.18 and 23. 1 Timothy 4.3-5 says that it is false teachers who, quote, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. It is the pastor who preaches against alcohol or dancing or playing cards that is the false teacher, not the pastor that affirms them. Okay? Here's the idea. God has given you good things to enjoy. Those things are not to take the place of God. That's idolatry. If you love those things more than God or you separate the gift from the giver, that's idolatry, okay? Those gifts are meant to provoke a love in your heart. When you bite into a delicious piece of steak, when you see your kids running around laughing, playing in the sprinklers, that feeling that you have is meant to be directed upward. That's the idea, okay? We're not to make these things idols. And here's a big one. Let me just be really clear. You're not to partake in sinful things. I think sometimes our discernment meters off and we think, here's some good things from God, so here's some other good things from God, when actually some of those things are sinful, okay? When we talk about Christian freedom, that's only on issues that are not sin. You don't have Christian freedom to get drunk. You don't have Christian freedom to curse. You don't have Christian freedom to uh, commit sexual immorality. You have Christian freedom when it comes to non-moral issues, whether you do or don't eat meat, whether you do or don't drink alcohol, whether you do or don't have a cigar, whatever it is. And so don't confuse Christian freedom, which is on neutral issues that some people are okay with and some people aren't. That's different than, uh, than actual sinful issues. If you're not sure whether something you're doing is helpful or not, guess what you can do? Ask people around you. That's why we function in community, okay? There are some shows that are okay to watch and there are some that are not. There are some things that are okay to do, and there are some things that are not. If you're not sure, ask. Talk to other people in your community, okay? Uh, I'm getting a little bit on a soapbox just because I'm going to be talking about this next week in the sermon uh, because the text talks about dying, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed. And so we'll talk more about that uh, next week. Okay, number eight. Conscientiously see sin for the lie that it is. Conscientiously see sin for the lie that it is. Okay? Here's something we often don't do. We don't realize how bad and painful and disgusting sin is. We only see its alluring presence. So if I see some woman who is beautiful and there is a thought that pops into my mind of adultery or something like that, typically there's just that thought and then I try not to think that thought. Okay? But one of the things you can do that's really helpful is to think through, that's not just a beautiful thing that God is saying you can't have. That is an evil thing. It is a disgusting thing. It's a thing that will rob you of joy. It will rob you of your relationship with Christ. It will rob you of your marriage. It will rob you of being around your kids. It will cost you everything. But typically when we see a temptation, we just say, oh, here's something that'd be fun to do. I'm just not allowed to do it because God says so. Why does God say that? The reason God says it is because he is out for your joy. He's out for your good. God is never asking you to give up a greater joy for a lesser joy. He will often ask you to give up lesser joys for greater joys, which are him, following him and knowing Christ. Okay? 
conscientiously see sin for the light it is. See that what it will cost you. See how awful it is. See how bad it will hurt you. See that it doesn't satisfy. It satisfies for a time, and then you're left with guilt and shame, and there was no long-term satisfaction. Only the gospel brings long-term satisfaction, okay? Number nine, mortifying sin. Confess your sins and temptations to others, okay? You confess your sins to God for forgiveness. Why does the Bible command us to confess your sins one to another? That's more for counseling. That's more for sanctification. That's more so that you can bring this dark thing out into the light and other people can come around you and they can help you. They can guide you. They can check up with you during the week. They can be praying for you, okay? So we don't confess our sins to others in like a Roman Catholic, you know, confession to a priest so he can absolve us for our sins kind of thing. We confess our sins to one another so that we might better walk in holiness, that we might fight sin together. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, and it is much harder to attack antelope. They're all together, working together, opposed to that one little sickly one that's out on the corner because it's not in community, okay? So yes, if you're not in community, you're like a little sickly antelope. That's my point, okay? Confess your sins to one another, but here's another one. Also, confess your temptations. This is one of the reasons why in our community groups here we split guys and girls to do the accountability time is so you can also talk about temptations. There's something about this. If I'm tempted towards something, that it's like a little seed is planted in my heart, and that seed will start to grow. As soon as I go to somebody else and I say, hey, I'm really tempted towards this, and now they know, well, now my chance of actually committing it has gone down severely. That little root has been pulled up because now other people know. If I was tempted to cheat on my wife with some particular woman, and I go to a friend of mine and I say, hey, I'm tempted towards this woman, he now can make sure I'm not talking to her, I'm not chatting with her, I'm not being flirty, that I have nothing to do with her. It helps protect us from sin. What you'll find is that, uh, so, so I'll say it this way, I think a lot of the things in my life where I've not committed certain major sins are not because I'm holy. It's just because I set up a bunch of barriers to where I practically can't because I'm not holy, okay? So I think part of growing in holiness is realizing how broken and wicked our hearts really are and how we will try to twist things and setting up barriers with other people so that that doesn't happen, okay? Which leads to my next point. Fighting sin begins way before you're actually tempted, Fighting sin begins way before you're actually tempted, okay? <clears throat> what happens is you start thinking thoughts that are not biblical thoughts. They're not theological thoughts, okay? They're false thoughts, and those start to grow. That then changes your action. And after practicing certain actions, you do worse and worse and worse actions, and then at the end of that, you end up cheating on your spouse, stealing money, punching a guy outside of Walmart, whatever it is, okay? You have to learn to fight sin way before you get to the temptation, Okay? If you're tempted, for example, towards pornography, the time to mainly fight that is not going to be two in the morning when your wife's off on some business trip or something like that. It's going to start way, way before that, where you're putting to death sinful thoughts, and you're renewing your mind with the gospel, and you're talking with other men about how you're tempted, where you get rid of the internet of your house, whatever it might be, so that you might fight sin. Okay? We like to think that courage is just something that we have just in this moment. Like we just rush out into battle or we just take a shot of liquid courage. People even use that kind of language. No, courage is something that you practice. You practice laying down your life and practice laying down your life and practice laying down your life. And 20 years later, when you get drafted and you're in the military and you have to rush into battle, now you can be courageous. The same thing is true in holiness. You don't just conjure up holiness in the moment. You practice holiness and practice holiness and practice holiness and then you do. So, so think about when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by the devil. That's not Jesus' first attempt at being holy. That's not Jesus' first attempt to read Scripture. Jesus has been walking in holiness. He's been praying. He's been fasting. He already knows the Bible, enough to refute the devil out of places like Deuteronomy. Could you defeat the devil with your knowledge of Deuteronomy? Okay? 
So the fighting sin and temptation begins way before that actual temptation hits you. Number 11, you must practice putting sin to death like you would practice a sport or playing a musical instrument. We've talked a lot about this, so I'll I'll keep this short. If a beautiful woman walks by and you practice checking her out, you've just created a spiritual muscle memory. The next time a beautiful woman walks by who's not your spouse, you'll be tempted to check her out. But if when a beautiful woman walks by, you resist, you turn away your eyes and you don't look at her, you've just created a spiritual muscle memory to do that next time, okay? You can practice holiness just like you would practice a sport. I'm not going to just get up one day and be a professional pitcher. I've tried, okay? That's not going to happen. doesn't matter how much I pray. Dear God, please make me a professional pitcher. Please, please, I'm fasting, I'm weeping, I'm ripping my clothes. Please make me a professional pitcher. And I just get up out of bed one day and just throw that 35-mile-an-hour fastball. That's what's going to happen, okay? Because the way that God has ordained for guys to be professional pitchers is for them to pitch their whole life and be given natural skills, okay? In the same way, you're not going to just wake up one day. I think a lot of us just pray, God, help me conquer this sin. 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 Help me con-. As if you're just going to wake up one day and it's gone. You're going to have to practice putting that sin to death over time like you would practice pitching or hitting a curveball or playing a flute. And the more you do it, the better at it you become. You're not great when you first pick up a musical instrument. You're not great when you first try to throw a curveball. You're not great. You're not great when you first try to practice righteousness. If you fail, that's okay. There's grace. But the more you practice that, the better at it you become. You can practice thinking righteous thoughts. You can practice turning your eyes away from evil things. You can practice when you got a bad temper and somebody makes you really mad. You can practice taking a breath and counting to five or whatever it is, okay? Practice putting sin to death like you would practice a sport. Number 12, you can only conquer sin by submitting to the Spirit, okay? Meaning you can't do it on your own strength. What you need to do is you need to get down on your face literally in your bedroom and you need to ask the Spirit to change. I mean, you just need to ask the Spirit to change your heart, to change your life. Just confess you need help. Confess your dependence on God. God likes you being dependent. He doesn't like you being independent. Confess to God how utterly needy we are of, uh, of the overwhelming grace and uh, mercy of God. Number 13. This is a big one. Don't try to, quote, not sin. Rather, focus on loving Christ. Some of us have made not sinning our Savior, where our focus all day is on don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. No, don't, don't sin, don't sin. Be better, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. And when you, when you do that, you'll find that you sin a ton. But if you'll just focus on loving Christ and realizing that, uh, that Christ loves you, you'll find that just naturally you start to walk in more holiness. Okay? That has to be the focus. The devil doesn't care what your thoughts are on as long as it's not on Christ, even if it's on how you can be better. Okay? That's a self-righteous thing. I remember when I used to play basketball, I played basketball in high school, uh, one of the things that my dad would tell me is when you're standing at the free throw line, don't think, don't miss. That's what I think. I'm like, oh, man, don't miss. These are free shots. Now, don't call them expensive throws. Don't miss, don't miss. And you'd miss. But if instead, why I'm lining up, if I'm lining up and I think, man, I'm going to drain this, then I would drain it. Okay? Don't focus on not sinning. Focus on loving Christ, and you'll find that you naturally sin less. Number four, be repenting constantly. Be repenting constantly. Martin Luther says the entirety of the Christian life is one of repentance. Jesus teaches us that when we pray, that we are to pray for forgiveness of our sins. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, okay? Every day, we're to be praying for repentance. We're to be praying for, uh, or praying for forgiveness. We're to be repenting, constantly realizing that we have fallen short and constantly relying on God's grace. And number 15, we already talked about this a little bit, but ask the Spirit to sanctify you. The active agent in sanctification is God, not you, okay? 
God has given you some grace and some means of grace that you can do that uh, puts you under the waterfall of God's grace. But the Spirit is the waterfall. God is the active agent in sanctification. Okay? Means of grace in fighting sin. And then I'm going to read a little quote, and Jeffrey will come up, and we will do a little Q&A. I put some means of grace in putting sin to death and fighting sin. Now, here's what I mean by means of grace. Okay? That term is used different between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, in Roman Catholicism, when they talk about sacraments or whatever being a means of grace, what they mean is justifying grace. They mean saving grace. That your infant baptism in Roman Catholicism takes away the original sin of Adam. Or that as you partake of the Eucharist and the Mass, you're becoming more justified. Okay? We don't hold that. We're Protestants. We hold that there are means of grace in the church, but they're sanctifying grace. They're things that help you spiritually. They're things that help you in your sanctification. They don't save you. They don't justify you. They're gifts that God has given you to accomplish what he's asked you to accomplish, okay? Right? So if you're barefoot and I ask you to jump really high and then I give you a pair of uh, basketball shoes or whatever, that will make it easier to jump, okay? It won't hurt your feet when you land. That's not the ability to jump. That's justification. That's what God gives us. But what these means of grace are is they're gifts that God has given to uh, walk in holiness. So here are a few means of grace in fighting sin. These are pretty obvious, but I just want to mention them. Prayer. That's a big one. Prayer. Number two, Bible study. Bible study. Number three, the ordinances or sacraments. You can use uh, either term as long as you realize those things don't save you. The ordinances or sacraments, baptism and communion. Those are means of grace. Those are means of grace. When you're doubting whether or not God loves you, you can remember your baptism. When God put a stake in the ground and promised that he loved you. When you partake of communion every week, it's a reminder that you're in fellowship with God and you're in fellowship with his church, the bride. Community is a means of grace that God has given us. We are not made and wired to function outside of community. That's why they put criminals in solitary confinement. Humans are naturally communal creatures. Corporate worship. Corporate worship is a way of fighting sin. Okay? Preaching, hearing the preaching of the word, that is a way that you fight sin. Even if you don't know everything that's going on, just by being there, God is doing something in your heart. A lot of times you'll find during corporate worship that you actually feel distracted or condemned because the enemy's trying to make you feel awful because that's a time when you're getting things that you really need. Okay. Confession, confession of sin is a way of fighting sin. Self-discipline, denying yourself certain things, fasting from time to time, these kind of things. Number nine, Christian meditation. By that, I don't mean like Buddhist meditation. You don't have to cross your legs and say uh, om and try to float or whatever they do. Rather, you fill your mind with thoughts about Christ. You fill your mind with the gospel, okay? In, uh, in uh, Near Eastern meditation, the idea is to empty your mind. Get rid of all wants. Get rid of all desires. Become one with the universe. Christian meditation is not like that. In Christian meditation, you're trying to fill your mind with thoughts of the gospel and have your desires satisfied in Christ, not getting rid of them, but having them fulfilled in him. And then uh, number 10, I put this one, this was an interesting one, marriage, especially if tempted towards sexual sin. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, when these guys are going to temple prostitutes, he doesn't just say, be holier and read your Bible more, he says, get married, okay? So that is a means of grace that God has given you to fight sin. I want to end by reading this. There's a philosopher in the second century, his name was Aristides, Aristides. He was a second century philosopher, he was not a Christian, and he wrote a letter to Emperor Hadrian in the Roman Empire, and he described early Christianity. So again, second century, so this is right after the time of the apostles, and here's how he describes their behavior. They do not commit adultery or fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet that which is not theirs. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them, and whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. 
Whatever they would not want others to do to them, they do not do to others. They comfort their oppressors and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their women are pure as virgins and their daughters are modest. Their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. From widows, they do not turn away their esteem and they rescue orphans from anyone who treats them harshly. The one who has gives to him who does not have without boasting. If there is anyone among them who is poor and needy, and if they do not have any extra food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Though they obey the commands of their Messiah with much care, living justly and seriously as the Lord their God commanded them. Okay? Now that is an indictment against much of Christianity today. But there is this emphasis in the New Testament and in the early church of walking in holiness, not to earn God's favor. This is for people that have already been changed by grace alone, for people that have already been changed just by putting their faith in Christ. But it does produce a life change. We as Christians are called to radical holiness, that we will look a little bit weird to the outside world because we won't partake in things that they partake in. Okay? With that in mind, Jeffrey, pastor of holiness at the... Uh, Jeff said that I should have started the lesson by saying that uh, I'm only teaching on half of sanctification because I'm only half sanctified. And so, apparently he's not much either, but. Okay, thoughts, questions, concerns, mortification stuff. 